name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched a movie by a real favorite filmmaker of a lot of us. We watched one of Wes Anderson's first films. It was the film that really solidified his style. We have watched Rushmore. It has glimpses of who he become. Oh no, oh, yeah. it is so much Wes Anderson compared to what Bottle Rocket was. Like it's oh, like no so doubt. it's very obviously this is the moment where he figures out that this is what he wants to do oh, as a filmmaker. No doubt, but it is more pedestrian than what would come later. Of course. Oh, like like yeah. even even Royal Tenenbaums is more him. He just gets more and more him as he's going on. I'm fascinated to see what French Dispatch looks like. Mm. Sure, but but by the yeah, by the time you get to like Grand Budapest Hotel and everything, he's like going like full bore into mm. every little eccentricity that he's got. And it's fantastic. I love it. Oh yeah, yeah, I love it. It's fanta- it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. We'll get into what some of those details of his style are yeah. in the deep dive, but first we're going to cover what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, well, I started off with a very uplifting movie called 8mm, directed by Joel Schumacher. It is a mystery thriller. Have you guys ever heard of this? I have, yes. I've heard of the title. Oh, Harley, Harley, Harley. It is about Tom Wells... He's played by Nicolas Cage. He's a private detective and he's hired by a wealthy widow to investigate a mysterious 8mm film that she's found in her deceased husband's safe. So he's died and they've gone into his safe to clear it out and they found this film. And it is a snuff film, or it appears to be. And this poor woman wants Nicolas Cage to verify whether it's real or not. And so he falls down this very disturbing, very dark and morbid rabbit hole of illegal porn, of the sort of criminal underbelly of that world, trying to find out if there is actually a company out there that is producing this type of of film. Joel Schumacher is... A fascinating director, isn't he? He, like, just think about his 90s, right? He does Falling Down, you know, this story about an angry white male, and then he goes and makes Batman Forever. And then just as like... A story about an angry white male. And then just as like a palate cleanser, he does A Time to Kill. He does this this movie about, you know, racial tensions in the South. And then he does Batman and Robin. And he finishes Batman and Robin, he says, you know what, I'm going to go and make this movie about a snuff movie now. Like... (laughs) What what an extra! It's like the ping the ping ponging between different tones is insane. Yeah, and then he goes on and does Phantom. Yeah, he's God bless him. Rest in peace, Joel Schumacher. He is, has such a fascinating breadth of topics that he deals with. Like you can split his filmography into chunks. You can say here is more serious things talking about dark topics like falling down and eight millimeter. And the race relations one you mentioned. And then you've got his more campy ones that he was appealing to the gay part in him. Where he's got Batman and Robin and Phantom of the Opera. Where he's able to just be exuberant. Yeah, he's very eclectic in that way. That a lot of filmmakers aren't. So he had variety and range. Is Cage full Cage in this one? Not really. He's sort of holding it back. He gets... Which is, I think, probably appropriate, because if he's going, like, full-on face-off cage... Yeah, it 
it wouldn't match the tone of the movie. He does get like a a little moment towards the end for him to to go into more theatrical territory, which is actually one of the more chilling moments of the movie. He's basically yelling at the guy who organized this film, you know, why did he want it? What did he want it for? Why did he want a video of a girl being butchered? And the guy just looks at him and says, because he could. Like, it's it's <laughs> one of the most chilling, like, it really does try and get into the psychology mm. of evil and sort of just the, the banalness of like, well, some people just do this because they want to feel power, because they like it. It's really, really unsettling and disturbing. It's miserably dark. It, it's written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven. Oh, oh, that seems that on sense. brand. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> the the tone was of Fincher it is Fincher busy. The, well, I don't. I th- he was doing Fight Club at, at this point. I think right. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah, he was busy, and this is not nearly as good as a, a movie as Fight Club. So that, um, that's a trade I'm happy to take. But the the tone is overwhelming, and even more disturbing. It is allegedly watered down from Andrew Kevin Walker's original script. Like apparently, it was even worse. In the original, just a uh, nasty original script. Yeah, it, and it's got this very grungy aesthetic with, um, you know, sort of, you know, these these empty, dirty warehouses and these, you know, sort of dank alleyways and everyone, you know, going in side streets where all the disreputable stuff is being sold and and things like that. It, the mystery is creepy because you sort of find it, it unfolds in a really interesting manner where you find out more about it and you, you just every now and then like a, a creepy detail just sort of seeps in and that's the next lead that Nicolas Cage gets to take it's got kind of an eerie tone to it but there's no true surprises like there's no like big reveal where you know someone is is revealed to be the villain that you never thought before or, or anything like that it's it's it is sort of workmanlike in, in that sense that it, it's not built around some huge twist but it is it has this kind of mounting revulsion and suspense as it continues uh and and wells descends it into this becoming this just emotional wreck um cage as i said pulls it back a little bit and he's pretty good in this but myra carter plays the the old woman who's found this tape of her husband's and she's really really good as this like sweet lady who had no idea that her husband was anything like this. And I spent the whole movie going like, I'm so hoping that there's no like third act twist where she secretly becomes all cutthroat and tries to cover it all up at the end. And thank Christ she didn't. Like she stays sweet throughout and and honourable throughout. You get Amy Morton as as the mother of this girl who uh, has been killed in the movie, though she doesn't know this. She's just thinks that she's disappeared and so she's sort of living in this limbo not knowing what happened to her she's very good in that chris bauer has a role in it and he is fantastic and joaquin phoenix uh has a an, an early role as sort of a guide uh to the the underworld that leads nicholas cage through all of these disreputable parts of town and it has an excellent ending too that makes good on the tone it should have ended two minutes sooner though like there's just this little bit that's tacked on at the very very end that you sort of seems like a a note from the studio that's being like you can't ask the audience to just leave this movie uh on 
the image of Nicolas Cage crying hysterically, having totally broken down. You need something, at least, to let us know that there's going to be something a little bit better uh, yeah, in the it, future. It, it's uh, Nick Fury coming up behind him, putting a hand on his shoulder and saying, there's a team I want you to join. It's It should have ended two minutes earlier. That would have been more in keeping with the tone of the movie. But yeah, this is unpleasant, but it is gripping. I next watched 8mm 2 which has nothing whatsoever to do with 8mm 1. It was originally filmed as an independent movie called The Velvet Side of Hell. It has no narrative connective tissue whatsoever. And That's a much better title. Yeah. Yes. And once, once uh, Sony, I think it was, acquired it, they tacked the 8mm name on to... Uh, help sell it better. So this is not related to 8mm 1, and thank God it isn't, because this is an erotic thriller, which 8mm 1 most certainly was not. This is directed by J.S. Cardone, and you have all of these characters that are sort of around the American embassy in Budapest. You've got David Huxley, who's played by Jonathan Shake. Um, he is Jonah Hex in Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Cool. He he is an American diplomat working at the, the U.S. Embassy, and he's engaged to Tish Harrington, played by Laurie Huring, who is the American ambassador's daughter. And they're on a holiday in Europe, and they take ecstasy at a club, and they hook up and have a threesome with a model named Risa, played by Zita Gorog. And once they get back to Budapest and go on with their lives, they get you know, a package in the mail. They've been filmed doing this, and now the blackmailer wants money. Uh, Was it he... filmed on 8mm? Uh, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not talking about the film, I'm talking yeah, about... This the... would have been, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I'm, this would have been 2005 when this came out, so I don't think so. No, maybe this blackmailer likes going retro. Maybe he, mm. he, maybe he misses film. Anyways, of course, because this guy's a diplomat, uh, he doesn't want that getting out. The the ambassador's daughter doesn't want it getting out either because her father's in line for a Supreme Court seat back in America. So it, it goes into this whole, like, you know, how do you deal with a blackmailer when you can't go to the police? Because we know that scandals, you know, are really damaging for Supreme Court nominations. Well, this probably would have back in the day, 2005, if there was a, a video of it. <laughs> anyway... Uh, th- this is an okay thriller, but it's undone by a terrible ending. Uh, the characters are interesting enough. I mean, David's kind of a dull guy, but he's got kind of a, uh, I don't know, a drive to him that, that gives him some interest. And Tish is, is a really nice character. Like, she's a likeable character. We, we get a little bit about what drives David. Bruce Davison plays the ambassador character, and he's... Not really interested whatsoever in David marrying his daughter. He's like a very sort of old money kind of fellow. Which sort of goes again to the reason of why David can't... Why they can't go to him or let it get out. Because that would be like just, you know... Per- he, he he would just not respond to that. But I, I grew to like Trish and David over the course of, of the movie. It's an incredibly graphic movie. It has this extremely explicit sexual angle to it like uh, there is an uncut version which is the one that i watched and i i don't want to say for for sure that there is unsimulated sex in this but there is sex that i find 
very difficult to believe is simulated because I can't imagine how you would. So it's like that in your face. It's that in someone's face. One specific shot is... Uh, I don't know how... I, we're an explicit podcast, so who cares? I don't see how you can simulate licking that part of the female anatomy without licking that part of the female anatomy. Right. Um, stunt vagina? Uh, so, yeah. Okay, I, I just thought of a joke, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> good, good, John. You're starting to self-censor. That's progress. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mostly because, you know, I don't want to say the word because family are here, uh, but also the fact that it's not the nicest work. It's not the nicest work. Um, but yeah, the whole mood, the whole, like, their journey, David and Trisha's journey, sort of is this descent into, you know, sleaze and conspiracy, and it has a very sort of, it has a very erotic thriller sort of vibe. especially that it in the movie? Mm, not really. Um, uh. But... Like that that European erotic thriller vibe too, where right. it's like so all like, like the red light district stuff, and you know strip clubs and sex clubs and and things. It has this interesting American political angle to it, where they're clearly trying to create this subtext where the the I mean this is during the George W. Bush administration, and so the American ambassador is a Republican, and all the diplomats that work for him are Republicans. And there is sort of an ongoing conversation in the movie that is explicitly verbalised early on about the whole idea of being filmed and recorded and surveilled. And they have a conversation within the film early on about the Patriot Act, about the Bush administration's surveillance actions. And there is sort of an interesting parallel between that and the... Uh, unwillful recording of of David and Trish, which is interesting. Yeah. I I would have preferred that they actually go more into that a little bit because it is sort of just table dressing more than more than something that's really deep and meaningful. But it's it's it adds a, an extra element to it. I just want to interrupt you for a second. I just looked down at the disk space remaining for recording on my computer. It is literally one hundred twenty seven hours. <laughs> I've got two hundred twenty nine hours here. Between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the ending lets it down. It 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 just throws this twist in out of nowhere that makes no real logical sense and just seems sort of thrown in there because they feel like they've got to because it's a nine because it's a, a thriller and they've got to throw in a twist and I could have done without it. I mean, it's a total arbitrary continuity link. I mean, I only even watched. Uh, I'm committed to watching it because it is called Eight Millimeter Two. Yeah. But it didn't need to be. Um, but I liked it okay until the very end. It is available for streaming on Tubi in Australia, if anybody is interested. I next watched Alice in Wonderland, the NBC TV movie version. Oh my god, yes. It is a family fantasy movie. I, I think you would... I, I wouldn't call it a musical, but there are musical numbers in it. Uh, I know that's a weird distinction to draw, but it feels appropriate. It's directed by Nick Willing, and it's based on Lewis Carroll's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And it follows Alice, played by Tina Mazzarino. She is preparing for a recital to all of her parents' fancy friends at a garden party, and she's very nervous. She doesn't want to do this. And then she sees a giant animatronic white rabbit running through the woods and decides to follow it down a rabbit hole into Wonderland and has various... Would you have followed it? No, God no, I would have screamed. Like, like even beyond the fact that it's a giant talking rabbit, it looks fucking terrifying. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this movie is a midday nightmare. Hmm. Um, and once she goes down the rabbit holes, she finds herself in the land of Wonderland, and she has various episodic adventures with the weird and wacky characters there. I watched and loved this as a kid. I watched watching it now. I mean, it's still fun, but it's weird as fuck. I mean, yeah, it's bizarre and fantastical. It's full of dream logic. It's very silly with these random little asides and absurdities. It's, I mean, it's good fun. But I was really picking up some of the the. It's got to be about drugs, right? I mean, it's got to be. Like she keeps eating and drinking mysterious substances and then having these hallucinatory adventures. Like, you know, she she goes and talks to this smoking caterpillar and then she eats a mushroom and she grows real big. Like, how are we supposed to interpret that as anything? Bobby Gold- Goldberg shows up as the bloody Cheshire Cat. And that is scary enough as a it is. A horrifying special effect, by the way. But I hate the uh, Mad Hatter. The giant head. That's actually a fantastic... Yeah, sorry, my voice broke for a second there. I think it was my terror trying to escape my throat. Um, that is actually a fantastic special effect on the enlarging of his head. Yeah, yeah, I love that whole sequence. Like, that's my favorite like, sequence. Terrifying. In the thing. Oh yeah, it's, it's like terrifying. it's bizarre. And uh, the, the, the thing that gets me is the 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 March hair with like the full on realistic giant hair head, but the human hands. It's yeah, it's weird. It's scarier than American McGee's Alice. We watched this also when we were kids. We watched this a lot. We watched it we a lot, kids. actually. This was our first exposure to Alice in Wonderland, apart from the book, obviously. Obviously. Uh, we, I don't recall ever watching the Disney movie, the Disney Alice in Wonderland. The this animation. Was, this was our yeah. Alice yeah. in Wonderland. Me I too. Know. I know I did watch the Disney one, but um, the animated one, but uh, this was always the one that I was more interested in. And yeah, this and Mirror Mask were my Alice in Wonderlands. I was I was picking up more of like the really sort of witty, very verbal dialogue yeah. exchanges this time. Watching it as an adult too, stuff that I didn't really understand, but like how the the back and forth is so rich with stuff that goes over the heads of kids, but it's like got this really really sort of witty repartee for the for the older people watching it. It it it's sometimes clunky. I, I could have done without the, the Alice narration over the top where, like, they're trying to, like, put in Alice's inner thoughts as narration and I could have done without it. That's a bit overstating the point for me. Yeah. But it has an interesting structure um, in a way that I think is is helpful for it as a television movie. It is a two-hour movie that is working for a three-hour time slot on television with ads. And so that episodic nature of it works the sort of going from different character to character and location to location and having these like little skits almost these little sketches with them the cast is incredible yeah oh yeah it's 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 extraordinary you got Whoopi goldberg and martin short and and all of these people gene um, wilder gene wilder yeah as as the mock turtle um I he love... has his own musical number which is fantastic yeah but just just watching it all in the one go though uh, reveals some pacing problems, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's structured in such a way that you're, you're not supposed to watch it in one go, uh, which is, is interesting. You're supposed to watch it with little five-minute breaks every ten minutes. Just sanity breaks. Yeah, but... but the just des- release the valve. <laughs> the design of it is pretty phenomenal. Like, it looks... It's, it's such an interesting realisation of that whole world mm. and that whole um, general 
fantastical vibe. Uh, I've also got to, like, I can't say I enjoyed the performance, but I've got to give props to Miranda Richardson for really, like, going for a real, like, shrill, unpleasant, over-the-top Queen of Hearts. Like, she commits. And and it's, like, difficult to watch her performance. It's appropriate. She's doing the right call. It's very brave. uh, And it's so unflattering. So I've got to give her props for going there. One of my favourite... With the Red Queen, you really do have to just... You have to go Take there. it to such an unpleasant place. Because she's an unpleasant character. Oh, yeah, but, like, Helena Bonham Carter didn't go near... Like, it's it's not even necessarily the personality. It's, like, the the sheer screeching tone. Like, it, it is almost painful to hear her speak. She's not... She's, she's talking in this consistent scream the whole way through uh, in a way that is that w- really works for the character, but makes it extremely unpleasant to listen to and makes me really not like it when Miranda Richardson turns up screen up on screen in this movie. And in that sense, it's like, it's a very, um, it's a, it's a very brave performance for a performer to give. Yeah. It's, it's like whenever she opens her mouth, you hear the sounds of a car's tires screeching. I liked a bit with the knights. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd's very good in, in this. He gets some really, fun little moments. I like the bit with the, the griffin and the, the mock turtle. I think that the, that the design of the griffin and the general op- uh, operation of the puppet that he is, is, is very effective. Let me just, I'm trying to find the, the cast list here. It's an ambitious production. It is. Um, but like you've got Christopher Lloyd, Miranda Richardson, Ben Kingsley, Martin Short, Robbie Coltrane, Whoopi Goldberg, Gene Wilder, I mean, Pete Postlethwaite is in it for a hot second. Um, it's a very creative and ambitious production. It's charming and weird, and I still enjoy it. I next watched Ravenous, which is a horror movie directed by Antonia Bird. Have you guys ever heard of this? No, I don't, I don't think so. so. It is loosely inspired by The Donner Party. Have you ever heard of The Donner Party? I have I heard of The Donner Party. All right. For any listeners who... They ate each other up? Yes. They had to, son. To survive. For any listeners who are unaware, the Donner Party was a group of travellers in 1800s America, right back when they were all settling the American West and everyone was making the journey across the country to California. And they went off the beaten path. They went on a, on a different route than the regular one. And they didn't get to the mountain pass in time, and so they were snowed in, and they were stuck at the bottom of the mountains in the middle of nowhere for the whole winter until the snow passed, and they had to eat each other. Uh, it's sort of this this yeah. infamous story of uh, man's fool foolhardiness coming into being just steamrolled by the wilderness, uh, and this has a this is very clearly inspired by that story. It's it's set during the America the Mexican American War in the eighteen forties. Which at the same time, all that stuff was happening. People were journeying west to California, and you've got Captain John Boyd, Guy Pierce. Uh, he is sent to a remote outpost in California, uh, in the the mountains. One night at this outpost, a delirious stranger named F. W. Callahan, played by Robert Carlyle, wanders into the camp and reveals that. Basic, he basically tells the story of the Donner Party. He tells the story of you know them going up on the wrong route, them getting stuck in the mountain pass, uh, and having to eat each other. 
and that basically one guy has gotten real into it and it's and it's started killing more people than he has to and you gotta hate it when people get a taste for it so robert carlyle has run away and just tried to make it over the pass and he he has uh and so all of the soldiers at this outpost go back to try and find this guy who's apparently gone all you know wild and cannibalistic and to rescue the the last woman that is supposedly still there with him but all is not as it seems as of course things really are in these sorts of stories this is an extremely offbeat gem it's got a kooky tone with these sparks of really pitch black comedy it's unusual and strange and eerie it has a score by Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn that kind of summarizes that in a really interesting way it's a lot of like it doesn't sound like the score that you would expect for this movie like it sounds like it's got kind of a kind of a synthy sound to it kind of a disco-y sound to it at times there are uh, uh, like it's just this this very erratic jumping all over the place in terms of musical tone there are parts where you know almost almost a, a, a Benny Hill style um almost that kind of thing starts coming in um during a chase sequence it's it's odd but it works so well it's so idiosyncratic and unexpected but it works brilliantly you got a lot of survival stuff you got like i mean i mean they all get they all get stranded out there with a guy coming after them trying to eat them right i mean i'm dancing around the point here but (laughs) the survival stuff there is all very good and you get some fun cat and mouse stuff and this has a real supernatural element to it it plays very much into the native american legend of the wendigo and the idea that people who consume the flesh of other people become monsters get a taste for it and that stuff's all interesting but they don't really seem to do a whole lot with it it sort of seems in search of a deeper meaning there is some interesting stuff there about sort of the parallels between the 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 villain's sort of desire to consume and to grow more powerful and um and eat these people to to take their their energy and their spirit and their power there's an interesting parallel that's sort of a little bit drawn there between that and the whole idea of westward expansion and manifest destiny and sort of the colonialist nature of settling uh, the West. You know, that they're sort of just plowing West, taking over Native American land, you know, just bulldozing over these centuries and centuries and millennia of history. There's an interesting connection there, but they don't really do that much with it. But the mountain environment is very interesting. It's all set up in like the, the 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 California mountains. So there's snowy stuff, but there's also like woods and and you know thick undergrowth and caves and things. It's it's a cool setting, and the time period's cool as well. I like horror movies that aren't set in the present day. That's interesting. We don't get man, many of those. We don't get like you know. I want what i i like it when like genres collide like that when like a western collides with a horror movie or something like that i want you know yeah, what I, 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 I want a traditional tolkien fantasy story that is interrupted by an alien invasion like i want a collision <laughs> of star trek and lord of the rings i think that'd be a fun movie anyways the the acting is all pretty good here um 
Guy Pearce is good. Robert Carlyle is good. Jeffrey Jones is in it, which, yikes, but he is good. He's playing a, a decent character here, and he's giving a decent performance. David Arquette is in here, though, and I wanted him gone the second he was on screen. Like, he is playing, not only is he playing a entirely tertiary character that doesn't need to be there at all, but he's also absolutely the most irritating thing in the whole movie. He's He should not have made it past the first draft of the script, just the character. And David Arquette does himself no favours with the performance either. It's off-kilter. Neil McDonough. Yeah, Neil McDonough's in it. Um, He's got that very intense vibe that Neil McDonough always exudes. But it, it, it's, it's just off-kilter and weird, and I really, really enjoyed it. Lastly this week, I watched 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a romantic comedy directed by Gil Younger. It is loosely based on the Shakespeare play The Taming of the Shrew, and, we're set, and it's set in Padua High School. And there's this new student, Cameron. He's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he wants to date Bianca, played by Larissa Ol- Olenek. But there are there are rules in their household. They have this over. She has this overbearing father who insists that she cannot date until her older sister Cat does. She's played by Julia Stiles, and so Cameron and Bianca come up with this scheme to convince the the local bad boy Patrick, played by Heath Ledger, to basically woo Bianca so that. They can start dating, and then Cameron and Bianca can... Uh, woo Cat, I should say. They convince him to woo Cat so that Cameron and Bianca can start dating. All these names. Um, I love this. It's such a smart, modern interpretation of the play. It's it's a loose adaptation, um, but they fit it to the setting very nicely. I mean, Padua High School. Uh, I mean, in the, in the original... In the original play, I, I believe it's it's they want to get married, but the father won't okay it until the older sister gets married because, of course, this is the the sixteen early sixteen hundreds, and so you know she's she's almost twenty five. She'll be an old unmarried hag. No one will want her if she's twenty five and unmarried. Uh, there's that element to it, and and as you can probably tell by that, um, the play is is not known for its progressive gender politics. It's in fact, one of the more retrograde of Shakespeare's plays generally considered. Um, I, I read a review of this movie in Variety that described the play very, very adroitly. They, they called it, uh, they, called, they talked about the play's hearty shut up went and get me a beer view of gender equity, which seemed to sum it up pretty well. Come on, Bill. Uh, Come on, Bill. Get woke. But this is written by... This is a a feminist take on this. This is written by two female screenwriters and there is much more focus on the characters of Kat and Bianca and their internal workings, their emotions, their relationship with each other as sisters. Uh, There's more to everyone than initially appears in this, which is really, really fun and enjoyable. It largely avoids the whole conformity message that so many of these sorts of things do, like the, is it Ali Sheedy at the end of the Breakfast Club that, you know, puts on makeup and does her hair and, oh, now she's all normal and beautiful and now she can date Emilio Estevez. It's, it avoids that element of it. There's, it the movie argues that you shouldn't have to sand off your rougher edges to find affection with someone, which is nice. Uh, 
the writing is really good too. That this is just a rat-a-tat back and forth humor, like it's just full of this this rich, very fun dialogue, and the actors are all great. I mean, Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger are both brilliant, but Larissa Olenek is someone that I always enjoy seeing. She didn't really go very many places uh, after the early days of her career, but she was also in Third Rock from the Sun for a little while, also dating Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I, I always enjoy seeing her. She's got an interesting screen presence, but you get some great supporting turns as well. Alison Janney turns up for, for a little while. David Crumholtz, just, he's playing a teenager, but he just sounds like a little middle-aged man. Like, he's got such a deep voice already. Like, so such a really deep voice. Um, it's it's kind of hard to... Uh, it's kind of hard to buy him as, as a teenager. But then you got, like, Daryl Mitchell playing a really amusing teacher of English at the school who gets a lot of, like, really fun jibes in. And... I gotta say though that the MVP is is Larry Miller as the father, who is so over the top and ridiculous and just funny. And I was thinking about it afterwards how um how they they absolutely had to pitch the character that high because if they played him straight and grounded, then he just comes off as abusive. Like he just comes off yeah. as like a monster for the way that he tries to control his children. But because Larry Miller plays him like a Looney Tunes character almost, it softens it enough for us to to keep laughing along in this comedy. But it's such a it's it's a really amusing performance that I I loved. They used this Seattle high school to film the actual high school, which used to be this old grand hotel that was damaged in a fire and then remodeled to become a school. And so it has this like huge resort style school with these fancy brickwork and like I wish I could go to that school, but it's really too old. No, no, I'd be like Johnny Depp in Twenty One Jump Street <laughs> or Steve you Buscemi. Go in there, solve crimes. Steve Buscemi in in that Thirty Rock cutaway, but hello, fellow children. But it's sweet and it's funny and it's impeccably cast. I really enjoyed it. It's on Disney Plus in Australia, and I assume everywhere else since Disney, I think, owns it. Yeah. So if anyone how, is, how, is interested. How would you try to appeal to the younger, like, like teens? How, how would you try to trick teens into thinking you're a teen? <sighs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Let's be perfectly honest. No one's putting me in, like, a 21 Jump Street situation. It's no. I'm too awkward, socially awkward a person, even when I'm pretending to just be my regular age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like you know what dabbing is? Are, are you? Yeah, but I cu- I couldn't like pull it off. Okay, dab for me. I want to see you. No, dab. I'm, I. It's like that, right? It's <laughs> it's like I don't follow along with this stuff. Like I remember when I was in the last couple of years of high school when planking was this thing, and I already thought that was moronic. <laughs> I remember planking. Ah, <laughs> uh, we were watching the music video for. First schism by Tool, and there's this part where well, Harley was getting freaked out, so I had to turn it off. But this is part because where this unpleasant. guy is like going perfectly straight, and he's just like on an angle. It's almost like he's doing this smooth criminal lean, but on his head. 
John. And I'm like, look, he's planking Harley. It's nothing John, to be scared of. I wasn't of. freaking out. I just didn't want to see it anymore. Yeah, but then I showed him. You, then you I showed do, him. There the are a lot of things that you just don't want to see anymore and try to get people to turn off, though, Harley. No, for this one, it was just unpleasant to look at. It looked fine. Then I showed them the music video for Apex Twins' Window Liquor. Uh, if there's anybody out there who wants to know what that is, watch it. Don't. Watch it. Don't. Watch it. Don't. Watch it. Don't. Watch it. Watch it. Anyway, on to our stuff. Yeah, so pretty much the only things we've been watching have been, obviously, Smallville. But we also started The Haunting of Bly Manor. So this is the 2020 sequel anthology Yeah, because it's connected and made by the same people who did Haunting of Hill House. It's the American Horror Story Asylum to the American Horror Story Murder House. Except these series are much better than American Horror Story. You know me. I love American Horror Story. I love Mm. its campiness. I love its, you know, essence, its absurdity. Uh, This is better. So... The first se- se- season, if we can really even call it that, covered Haunting of Hill House, obviously, that's the name. By Shirley Jackson. Yeah, and it adapted that. This season is adapting Turn, uh, of, the screw. Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Also, like, little bits snippets... And bits and pieces of other Henry James ghost stories that have never been adapted. Yeah, just, you know, to yeah. fill out negative space. And because Mike sense. Flanagan yeah. loves ghost stories, so he just wanted to chuck as many Henry James things into this as he could. Yeah, Yeah, I I read Turn of the Screw last year for university, and there is not enough of that to get nine hours of television out of, so I'm glad that they're pulling in some other stuff as well. So basically the story is, a young governess is hired by a man to look after his niece and nephew at the family country house after they fall into his care. Arriving at the Bly Estate, Bly Manor, she begins to see apparitions that proceed to haunt the premises. Bly Manor, a great good place. This this series is perfectly splendid. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is not. It's different. It is different. Yeah. To Hill House, Hill House was very much a personal story about a family grief. Yes. Whereas this is much more your traditional ghost story. Ghost story. Yeah. It's been put into the the period where the original sets like quite old so they set in the 80s yeah they moved it up to the 80s and it really really does work yeah it's all told through this the framework of a woman coming to a wedding rehearsal in 2007 and telling the story story. this story about uh because everyone was like telling their own ghost stories then she's like all right Alright, you you want you like ghost stories? How about I tell you a ghost story with like five different ghost stories yeah, in it? It's basically like it's that line from the start of the book, the if you think a ghost story involving a child is a turn of the screw, how about two? So this has a fantastic fantastic cast. Uh it's got Victoria Pedretti, who was in the Haunting of Hill House. As Nell in this, she plays Danny Clayton, the governess character. You got Henry Thomas back, who played the young version of the father. And he comes in as the uncle, Henry Wingrave. You got Tania Miller as Mrs. Gross, who... She gets her own, like, standout episode. Even though she's in the other episodes, she gets given 
a proper a focus episode. Focus episode. It's basically just a giant. Just it's incredible. It's an, it. It just shows how best episode of the season so far. Yeah, it just shows how incredible an actor she is. You got Rahul Kali from people would know him from iZombie as the character Ravi. He plays Owen, and he's fantastic in this. Uh, you got Oliver Jackson Cohen coming back uh, to this thing as Peter Quint. You would know who that is if you've read the book. And similar to the character he played in Inv- The Invisible Man, he's an abusive piece of shit. Who um, has a tendency to disappear. Yes. Uh, but the real standouts are the child actors. Oh, uh, You've also got Amelia Eve as Jamie, the groundskeeper, and Taria Sharif as Miss Jessel. The previous governor. Greg Sestero's in this. Yeah, he's at the in the opening. I didn't notice him! I didn't recognize him! I'm sure you'll see him later on. Oh god, I hope so. God bless you, Greg Sestero. You're Greg trying. Greg Sestero was Mark from Best Friends with Tommy Wiseau. But, oh my but god. But the two real standouts I have to tell Niall of that. I have to tell Niall of yeah. that. Oh, hey Google. No. Do a broadcast. No. Just hold on. What's the message? Hey Nye, come here. I want to tell you something and I want to record it for the podcast. Sorry, I didn't understand. Come on, we have to get through. Anyway, I'll tell her later. Anyway, whatever. Um, yeah, go on with what you were saying. The two real standouts have to be the child actors who play the two. Oh, can you tell Niall to come here? No, can I? I'm not sure this is going to play as well as you're hoping it will, Sean. Because the reaction's got to be pretty big to justify the, the build-up. the room, it's fine. She loves how stupid it is. Like, this morning we were literally... Hey, Nye, uh, guess who played... Yeah, yeah, come here. Guess who... Guess... Yeah, I know. Gu- guess who was playing the fiancé in the opening segment of Blind Manor? Yeah, how brilliant. I mean, this ghost story at this wedding reception. I mean... What is this? <laughs> what a funny story, Mark. Oh, what a funny story, Mark. Anyway, uh, the two real standouts have to be Emily B. Smith and Benjamin Evan Ainsworth as Flora and Miles. Yeah. They're the they're the, ch- the Wingrave children. They're fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Miles has this sort of quality where he's acting much older than he actually is. Scarily adult. Yeah, and Flora's just got this constant cheeriness that's really off-putting but it's also like it's also nice to see because she helps balance moments in this like she's got this creepy ass dollhouse where you just see she's got these little dolls of the people who live in the house and the ghosts who are in the house and they sort of move around depending on where they are in the actual house uh and it's creepy as was the case with Haunting of Hill House, there are ghosts hidden in the background yes. that you have to be on the lookout for. Uh, we, we've seen one who's basically a man dressed in, like, hessian bags. Yes. Uh, there's also a soldier. There's also a little girl. And Plague Doctor! Yeah. Love seeing that. I hope Netflix continues this franchise. I hope that Absolutely. it keeps getting. Because it kind of seems like... Also, with the the general like inconsistency of, of Netflix renewals and and series longevity, like anthologies seem like a good area for them to explore. Yeah, that you can Definitely. just 
Because then also it's not like inconsistent. They are. Yeah, and and then also that seems like good for a streaming show, for a streaming service especially, because it's not even necessarily about maintaining the same audience over five, six years. It can be just like didn't see the first three. Who cares? This is a brand new story, and we're using the same production apparatus, and that saves us money and everything like that. So, yeah. And yeah, and the show carries on a lot of the same Mm. philosophies. Yeah, absolutely. Like. The, in the first show, the idea that ghosts are unstuck from time, like that they experience moments different, not as a straight line, but as a cascade of things around them. Yeah, uh, this series is a lot stronger than, than an anthology series like American Horror Story because the stories are actually separate Yeah, and not trying to create this extended universe of... Then again, that that was retroactive for a lot of bits. No, I know, it's just, at a point, you have to, with American Horror Story, you have to have watched previous seasons to yeah. understand the current one. Yeah, and... Only one of them, though. Only Apocalypse. Yeah, I know, but I that worked to its detriment. And I really hope that Flanagan has the, has the sense to keep it them separate. He has... We haven't finished Bly Manor, but he has said it is completely separate. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, they, it is. You know what they should do? They, I've been dying for a proper big adaptation of The Monk by Matthew Gregory Lewis. It's a, like one of the very first gothic novels in 1796. I read it for university. And it's great and ridiculous and huge in scope. And it has one of the best... Surprise! It's the devil! <laughs> reveals in all the fiction <laughs> like i love it i've i've been i know there's like a, a i think a, an italian movie version but even that like softens some of the some of the surprise it's the devil stuff i'd really like to see flanagan do a version of the fall of the house of usher and really tie in some of the other like pit in the pendulum yeah and all that sort of stuff mm. wrap it all in you could call it the haunting of the house of usher yeah. I I would like him to do a version of The Name of the Rose, which is a 1980 yeah. novel by Umberto Eco, and it follows the story of a bunch of Franciscan friars and stuff in this place where monks and priests just keep dying, trying to find this holy book, this book written by Aristotle, and it turns out that it's a book of humour that can kill people. And that's... I'm afraid you're not going to get that, Jean, because I think that um, that's already the right... I I literally just saw that it's getting a... There's a miniseries. Yeah, they just did a miniseries last year, so I think the rights are probably tied up with that. That's like got John Turturro... And Rupert Everett and I'll Michael Emerson that. in it. I'll watch it. Promising. I'll watch it. Uh, There's a song by a uh, uh, progressive rock artist called Arion. Or Arion is the name of the project. Uh, called the Abbey of Sin, and it's literally just that story about that. It it rocks. So this is a fantastic series. Brilliant 100%. performances. Designs for the ghosts are oh, just yeah. phenomenal. There's one ghost who it looks like his eyes are headlights of a car, and it's just such a spooky image. It's evocative. 
I'm always fascinated. It's it's like part of there's a part in the lighthouse where there's light shining out of a character's face, and that that kind of image always fascinates me to no end. It's a it's a remarkable series. I can't wait to watch more of it. Absolutely, especially since it's starting to answer questions. Mm. Doesn't Flanagan have another Netflix show coming up soon? Not sure. Not sure. But yes, he does. Midnight is- Mass. Um, an isolated island community experiences miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic, mysterious young priest. Uh, it's an original story. He's writing and directing it himself. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm down for anything Flanagan does. He's such a fascinating... Oh, Henry Thomas is in this too. Awesome. Hey. Awesome. Always cool to see him. Henry also, Thomas accent... was in Doctor Sleep. As yeah. the, that that character that turns up very CGI altered, but it is Henry Thomas. Oh, he yeah. Henry Thomas plays him. Yes, we've already actually had this discussion on the the best of the year podcast. Oh, huh. you can't see it. It's yeah. yeah, and yeah, the accent work is fantastic in this season as well. You got people putting well, on there, English accents. There are some people who have been complaining. About the accents. Nah. Uh, they, they've all done very I well. I think it's fun. Yeah. It fits the tone. It yeah. doesn't pull me out of it at all. No. But so this is on Netflix. And watch it. Watch Haunting of Hill yes. House. The franchise watch is the... on the list. Yeah. yeah watch it's... people, everyone who's listening to it, put it, put whatever the hell you're watching down and watch these because they say so many important things. Yeah about the relationship between the living and the dead, like and the, all of that. Uh, the first season, particularly the last episode, was really transformative for me. Not going to get into that, uh, but yeah, it's um, incredible. I'm excited for anything of Flanagan's that comes up. Somebody's now we're going to do our small section of the podcast called... Scene from Smallville, where we discuss the scary shit that happens in Smallville. We watched a few episodes over the week, but not a lot of scary stuff happened. We've reached the end of season two. Yeah, they, it ends off on they, a hell of a cliffhanger. They tend to be pretty calm reaching the end of the season. Uh, Chloe, played by Alison Mack, uh, is being cajoled into being this really unethical piece of shit by Lionel Luther. So. Alison Mack being cajoled into illegal acts by a rich older psychopath. Mm. Hmm. Uh, Terrence Stamp does the voice of Draw L. He's on that Brightburn shit. Like, rule the world kind yeah. of nonsense. And it's but, like, hey, Jarell, chill. And I don't know. Terrence Stamp's voice just at times can be terrifying on its own. He's it's, just got that such a control. It sends me back to Haunted Mansion. <laughs> Where he says the line, I told you it would be a mistake to run away with that girl. But I loved her. Was love my mistake? Yes! I tried to protect you. All these years I've sacrificed for you. But what would you understand of sacrifice, duty, or honor? You loved her. Well, damn you. Damn you all to Oh, we have to cover that. What about in The Phantom Menace, that unforgettable role as Chancellor Valorum? <laughs> what about when he says, Will, Will you, you defer, defer your, your motion to allow a commission to explore the validity, the validity of your, of your accusations? accusations? In The Phantom Menace. 
That was so sad. That the only so reason, the boy. only reason Terrence Stamp wanted to be in Phantom Menace was so that he could work with Natalie Portman, who he thought was one of the like best young actresses who was starting to rise in her star, but he never actually got to work with her. He was never on set when she was. And that is so it's, depressing. It's such a shame how they underutilized him. Anyway, so also the continued presence of Alison Mack. Yeah. Particularly when she is at this point so just wrapped with jealousy. It's and uncomfortable. It's just not fun to watch. Especially since you <laughs> knowing a lot of the stuff that went down at yeah. Nexium. So now we're gonna play for you the trailer to the Wes Anderson picture. Rushmore. These are the names that define our world. The artists who shaped our minds. The rebels who challenged our views. But of all these legends, there is one that stands above all others. I'm sorry, did someone say my name? <laughs> What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. Could I see some documentation on that, please? Did you invite that kid to your party? Max Fisher. Come on, Dad, there's gonna be girls there. I'd rather die. Pull your head out of your... Maybe I'm spending too much of my time starting up clubs and putting on plays. Kiss me, little one. I should probably be trying harder to score chicks. I like your hat. You're a teacher here, aren't you? Oh, I'm so glad you could come. I want you to meet a friend of mine, Peter Flynn, Max Fisher. Hi. Who's this guy? Has it ever crossed your mind that you're far too young for me? I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? I don't know what you see in her. I, I don't think she's right for you. What's that supposed to be? Hello, Herman. How are you, Rosemary? I know about you and the teacher. Does Max know? She's about five foot three, 112 pounds, glasses. You know, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both little children. War does funny things to men. Well, you'll find a pair of safety glasses and some earplugs underneath your seats. Please feel free to use them. What do you think of Max's latest opus? It's good. But let's hope it's got a happy ending. Rushmore. Thank you very much. That was a theatrical trailer for Rushmore. It is a coming-of-age comedy directed by Wes Anderson, which is about Max Fisher played by Jason Schwartzman. He is a 15-year-old scholarship student at Rushmore Academy, a high-end, prestigious school in America. He meets and forms a childish crush on a beautiful new teacher named Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams. And he befriends a fellow student's father, Herman Bloom, played by Bill Murray. He's this titan of industry, this this millionaire who hates his own children but takes a shine to Max. 
So this creates a bit of a problem, however, because Herman likes Rosemary as well, and so things get a little bit complicated. So why don't we just start off by each going around and saying what we thought of this movie. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of Rushmore? Yeah, it's not my favourite Wes Anderson film. I think we all know what that is. Do start seeing those things in his filmmaking and in his characters. The inherent childishness of a lot of them. The too smart or too clever for their own good kind of thing. And I I, I did enjoy it. It took a little bit... It took a little while to, for, to really catch me, though, I have to say. I didn't like the character of Max. I thought he was a little psycho, but I do appreciate his artistic vision and the production value of his plays. I think he's definitely got a future in the theatre, and that future is definitely going to be mired in scandal. <laughs> yeah, boy needs to learn how to accept no. Yeah. So, I liked it. Obviously, not as much as some of Wes Anderson's other movies. My favorite is not Grand Budapest Hotel, surprisingly enough. It would be Fantastic Mr. Fox. Really, this does begin the solidification of Wes Anderson's house style. It has a witty repartee. The tip for tats in this movie are fantastic, particularly between Max and the much larger Scottish kid. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy the scenes between them. Mostly because I love hearing that kind of accent. Yeah, especially when the guy is right and proving Max wrong. Yeah. It's just satisfying. Like John said, Max Fisher's a little shit, but played very well. By a up-and-coming Jason Schwartzman. He wasn't even 18 at the time that he filmed this. It's a very good movie. It's very precise. It does take a bit to get going, in earnest, I find. What do you think, Lawson? I love this movie. I think I'm hotter on it than, than you guys are. I think it's the crystallation of the Anderson aesthetic. I think it's hilarious. I think it's pretty brilliant. I, I don't hold quite the same level of disdain for Max that you guys seem to. I don't think that he is an endorsable character, but I don't think he's supposed to be. He is a pathetic sort of kid. He, he thinks a lot of himself, but there's not much there to back it up, and the movie is sort of about his maturation. There's a lot to go into there, but I, I don't think that he's quite the sociopath you're making him out to be. I just think he's kind of sad and lonely, but we can go into that. Why don't we start off with Max? since that is apparently going to be at least mildly a point of contention here. He, he is an abrasive character in ways. He is not... He's not taking the hint. He's not taking the hint from Miss Cross that this is a bad idea. But when you look at his broader character, he is, he is someone who seems very afraid of the world. Mm, I, I do get that. He is very afraid of the world. He feels like an outsider at this school, right? Like that he is a scholarship student. He tells all of his classmates that his father is a brain surgeon when he isn't he is he's a barber he's sort of just been this poor kid in this rich person's world for all these years and he tries to hide that so that he doesn't feel out of place and then on top of that you have the fact that his mother has died and his father is not much of a father he he doesn't provide the kind of parental guidance that's needed he's he almost seems they're both lost in their own ways. Like, like Max is, 
is stuck. He, he so desperately wants to be the person that his mother thought that he could be. I mean, that like she is the one that got him admitted to Rushmore because he wrote a one-act play about Watergate when he was five. But he's trying to live up to that version of himself that he thinks would make her proud, whereas at the same time, his father seems to feel like he can't interfere with his son, like he can't discipline him. It's not a paternal relationship. The power dynamic there is is not that of a parent and a child. It's roommates, almost. I mean, I... Th- and he can't relate to him. Yeah. I mean, I think of the scene where he bails him out of prison... And Max is like, I'm going back to the to Rushmore. And his dad goes, I don't think that's such a good idea, Max. And then we just cut to the next scene and Max is back at Rushmore and the dad's gone home. I mean, there's no discipline there because the father seems as lost and as confused by the death of his wife as Max does. And he wants to support Max. He wants Max to be brilliant. But at the same time, he seems not to be able to figure out how he can help with that and so he does what he so instead he goes very hands off which is the it's the wrong option to take so there's a whole lot of really sad pathetic things swirling around max where he's trying to be a sophisticated adult like he's trying to be you know this sort of intellectual collegiate style of grown man at the age of 15 and he is funny as a result like you laugh at him not with him but he's presented in a very pathetic light throughout much of the movie which when you look at at his behavior through that lens i i agree with everything that you're saying that a lot of the things that he does would be very troubling if he were 10 years older and and are and are still inappropriate now don't get me wrong but within the context of his whole state of being and the general world that he exists in and the the way that other adults treat him. I I find myself having a lot more sympathy for him than I think you two do. You are right. He is compensating in a lot of ways. To me, he just comes off as really arrogant, which he is, and that's part of the compensation. Particularly how he keeps going on, I wrote a hit play! Yeah. I mean, he's trying to justify his own inclusion in the Rushmore set. He's trying to justify his place in this world of luxury and, you know, rich people that, by all rights, he he doesn't feel entitled to. Then he acts petulant about going to an actual public school. Oh, yeah, yeah. He both has a high opinion of himself and a low opinion of himself. So he's sort of resting in that liminal state between arrogant and sad. It's also worth, like, just even beyond all of the the Max-specific stuff, it's also worth just pointing out the fact that he's 15. That he is a teenager, and teenagers are not known for their self-awareness and maturity. Yeah, we've all been there. I mean, not to this extent or not in this way but like we all have a pretty high opinion of ourselves as we're going through that period we all prioritize ourselves and and think that we're uh do better things so you've got all of the max specific stuff which is about his environment the way that he's being parented the way that he relates to the people around him but then you've also got the teenage stuff and i think it's also like pointing out how desperately lonely he clearly is. Yeah, too many clubs, man. It's the clubs. That's exactly it. He's trying to relate to people. Like, he's trying to 
to fit in any way that he can and he'll he'll start these clubs he'll be the president of that club he'll go and make a fencing club because he's a very awkward kid who's just trying to find some sort of connection to the people around him yeah. and the only thing the only person that he can find connection with is this disheveled desperately unhappy 45 year old man who is the father of one of his two of his fellow students it's i mean that's not a healthy relationship the the whole movie is sort of about these two very unhealthy people the the character of max and the character of herman are matched together in a very specific way i think we are meant to see a link between the two as being potentially they are each other. But but that is Max's future and that is Herman's past. Like, I feel like that is a link that we're supposed to, to draw there. And that adds to the general, like, miasma of sadness around a lot of what mm. I, I see in this movie. I actually think this is a really sad movie. Yeah, it makes their conflict over the teacher. Some of the ideas that they have on getting back at each other, like the bees in his hotel room smashing up the bike can be amusing but a lot of then you've got max trying to cut the brake line (laughs) actually cutting the brake line on bill murray's car and it's like that's a an actual crime yeah if if herman actually hit someone and hurt them Hmm. that's that's not like bail you out that's like that's the point where it gets upsetting like that's all Max can Look, and resort to. I understand you guys saying, oh, it's all the context around the character, but there are things that he does. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not. I don't care what context is around. I'm not him. trying to excuse any of the things yeah. that he does, but I also think that we will, I'm sure, when we're discussing the relationship between him and Miss Cross, we will get to the scene where he tries to force himself on her. I think that this movie needs that scene. It needs the scene where he cut Herman's brake lines. He needs to go too far because that's the... I don't even know quite how to put it in words. He he needs to hit rock bottom. You know, he, he needs to totally spiral out of control because that's the only way that he can actually gain the self-awareness that he does at the end of the movie. But like, all right, let's put it... Let, let me ask this. Do you think that at the end of the movie he has become a better person? He's on his way. Barely. He's he's on his way to getting there. I still think his father needs to be a, a more assertive presence mm. in his life. And we don't get that by the end. No. Not really. But if that happens, then Max will be on his way to I'm, I'm glad that he's. Better. I'm glad that he's worked on his classist bullshit. I'm glad that he's actually knuckled down and has put on a hell of a play. He should really focus on the Max Fisher players yeah. as his like primary extracurricular. And I'm glad that he was able to reach a sense of, you know, peace with all of the shit with Herman and Mrs. Cross and all of that stuff. But I don't know, there's still something wrong inside of him. You don't I... cut someone's brakes just on a whim i don't know if i a little bit of a darkness i don't know if i go that far john i think this is also a comedy and part of the over the topness is 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 a little bit part of that but also i went to school with people who did really stupid dangerous stuff Mm. again they were 14 15 and they didn't have the brain development to fully understand the fact that 
this is real bad. That this is... They, they understand cause and effect. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, like, you're... I think you're looking through this through the eyes of an adult. And Wes Anderson is trying to play this through the eyes of a 15-year-old. Yeah. And I think that teenagers don't have good impulse control. They make stupid decisions. And sure, cutting a, cutting the brake lines is a pretty huge and unfortunate example of that. But I, I, I don't think within the context of the film, within the context that it is a comedy and like it's this absurd thing, um, I don't think that he is coded to be as something wrong inside of him as as you say i think that by the end of the movie we are supposed to feel that he has come to a better place and that he has a sense of perspective about himself and a sense of self-awareness and that he is going to try and be better going forward that he's going to make a go of it and that's that's another thing i like i like that he doesn't get back into rushmore i like that he stays in this public school i like that he doesn't get what anything that he wants he gets nothing i mean he the bridges he burned with rushmore yeah (laughs) he he spirals his life spirals out of control and hits rock bottom and he just has to make do with that i will also point out that it isn't just his father who's letting him down. The characters of Herman and Miss Cross are letting him down profoundly. Herman is should barely be allowed around his own children, let alone this yeah, other exactly. disturbed kid. And Miss Cross is... I was getting freaky apt pupil vibes from yeah. the relationship between Herman <laughs> and Max. Like, I was... Like, they were, they're just making each other worse. Yeah, you were, you were just waiting for, for Bill Murray to push Jason Schwartzman down in the basement, basement so he could kill a homeless person. Um, sure! <laughs> but, like... If that had happened, I would have been like, Oh, Wes, that's a little dark, but I would have... I would have accepted it as a thing that happened. But, but yeah. Miss Cross, the way that she deals with Max, is not professional and is not good practice as a teacher. No. If you... If a student becomes that obsessed with you and that you know emotionally attached to you in what is clearly a mountingly inappropriate way then you don't just continue to hang out with him and you know go golfing with him and his strange middle-aged friend on the weekends you you go to brian cox with that you start there are a whole lot of processes that would kick in 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 that Go sense. to Max's father. Yeah, I shut that shit down. I have family who who are who are teachers, and it's like no, there are very very strict codes of conduct in the way that you deal with students. So, and I'm, and I mean, I I don't want to like put all of this on on Miss Cross though, because I mean, some of the stuff that he does regarding her is beyond the pale and cannot be excused in any way, shape, or form. He tries to force himself on her, but she should not have been giving him as much rope as she was throughout a lot of this movie. She she and all of the other adults here are letting him down by continuing to humour him. Yeah, like Brian Cox's character. Brian Cox's character... get away with some shit. Brian Cox's character, I think, is the only adult that behaves reasonably in the entire movie. Yeah, when he tries... When Max tries to blackmail, he's like, oh, she already left. And Max is like, you let her go? And <laughs> on Brian Cox's face, you're just seeing him being like, what? But it's, it's like that, um... It's, it's a wonder that he didn't die of whatever put him in the hospital. But it's... Like, the, oh, the, when he the opened stroke, his yeah. eyes and saw Max, that he just didn't flat. I, I did love that scene, how just totally, like, that, that, that Max's presence brings him out of his, 
his stroke-induced coma. <laughs> like, and not in a good yeah. way. Like, the sheer rage. It brought him kicking and screaming <laughs> like Kratos clawing his way out of hell. Like, I was having a good dream. Now I'm brought back to reality. It's like, I was in a dream, but now I'm back to the nightmare. But you look at that first scene with Brian Cox and Max where Cox puts him on academic probation... And it's that sort of, like, very... Like, Max is walking into this scene like he's walking in with a colleague, an equal. Mm. He And he tries to, you know, do this negotiation thing. Or, well, I suppose I, I'll have to do a postgraduate year. He's, he's, he's trying to be a sophisticated adult. And he's not respecting the relationship that he has with Brian Cox, as Brian Cox being the headmaster of this school. And Brian Cox very much rightly is just like, you know what, he just doesn't engage with any of it. He's the only one that doesn't engage with Max's own inflated view of himself. And then you get later on when he actually does have to expel Max. You get the reprise of that when uh, Max's little minion is... Dirk. Uh, Dirk. Dirk. The when Antichrist. But when he's looking through the window at Brian Cox, like, lecturing him and yelling Having at him. Having a go at him. And, like, and back, like, giving him the the uh, talking to that adult an adult should reasonably give him. And he's not the big man anymore. He's not the no. the colleague. That actually made me happy to see. Yeah. Um, it, because someone had to take it. him down a like, peg. It was the talking to that he deserved and, and the that one he that he needed. needed. Hmm. I, I loved that. I, I don't know. I took a lot of joy from seeing... I think seeing it's, it was good for Dirk that. to see that too. Because Can we talk about Dirk for a second? <laughs> Jesus. Okay. If Max isn't a psycho, this kid is. No, no. I like Dirk because Max was trying to make a mini Max with Dirk. And by the end, Dirk's not having any of that. I did like when he sees Herman leave Miss Cross's house. Dirk just looks at him. <laughs> <laughs> As if he's trying to bring a church steeple down through it. He blocks the car and, like, Bill Murray has this, like, look on his face. It's like, oh, God. Like, he looks, like, kind of nervous <laughs> to seeing this, like, this, this, little this like, uh, the omen kid in the middle of the road. And, yeah. like, he has that line. You're a married man, Blue. You're supposed to be his friend. Look, Dirk, I am his friend. Oh, yeah, and with friends like you, who needs friends? <laughs> like, it's... It's like, <laughs> all right, Isaac, back to the cornfield with yeah. you. Yeah. Like, the reason I like Dirk is because while Max tries to feign being mature... Dirk actually Dirk is. Dirk actually is to, like, a... To a scary eerie degree. degree. Yeah. yeah, he's like the kid in Haunting a Blind like, Manor. Like, he's not... Like, he's horrifically adult. He's not, like, begging for people to see him as mature. He just actually is. Which and when he forgives him later, that's the yeah. most adult thing that anyone in the movie does. I like when Dirk and all of the other little kids were, like, pegging the rocks at him. I like that, too. That was a good scene. I just, I've come to the realisation I like seeing the character of Max in pain. Alright, let, let me ask you this. Do you two think that the movie wants us to be on Max's side? No, okay. no, I don't think so, but I think Wes does such a good job at making me not like the kid that I end up really not liking him. Although, I do like the scene where he's where Max contacted Bloom's wife, <laughs> meets her on top that of the awesome. car park. That was awesome. And he's got 
a lunch. He's got a lunch, lunch there, and I was there. like, oh. The fact that he's got a lunch there, and he offers her the tuna sandwich, I'm like, okay, you're kind of, you're like, kind of endearing me to this kid who's I, clearly I, watched far too many movies. I like that, because he's obviously seen this shit in the movie once yeah. or twice. <laughs> it's like, come meet me at this and abandoned decided parking to do, lot. <laughs> and he decided to do the, the adult and polite way, bringing some food for them to have food while they discuss... Drinks. Herman Bloom's infidelity. infidelity. <laughs> I wish more that blackmailers cool. did it that way. You know, I find it interesting, John, that you're that you specifically seem to be so resistant to a lot of the softer gradations of the Max character. I just think he's an arrogant little prick. Don't you? Don't you think that that's kind of a reductive way of describing the character, having seen the the arc of it of him? Look, it's. He gets better by the end. He does get better by the end. He does have a character arc, and I understand that. But... But, like, he's not, like... I can't get past some of the more poisonous things that he does. I think John was just soured on him from the get-go. But he's not Draco Malfoy in, like, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. He's... No, he's no. not, and I understand that. And I'm just gonna put it out there. I didn't... I don't hate... Draco Malfoy. I I like his arc better than I like Max's. But that's over the course of movies, so I get it. I just think this, there was something about the way that Max went about his interactions with people that rubbed me the wrong way. That he, he just used people as a means to an end for a lot of bits. And his obsession with Mrs. Cross made me very uncomfortable. Mm. I'm gonna send you a that- I think more than anything, that was the thing. Oh, it's it's very uncomfortable. But I, 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 we've already mentioned the scene, but the scene where, like, probably the darkest, most serious scene in the whole movie yeah. is the scene where he tries to kiss her, and she like finally rounds on him and lets yeah. him have it. Not lets him have it, but goes off. And- Destroys him verbally. Mm. I mean, I mean, just like rips him into shreds and reveals him for the child that he is. Yeah. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I love your friend instead of you, but... Please, Max. You honestly believe you love Bloom instead of me? Yes. You'll have to forgive me if I don't take your word for that. Oh, stop. Miss Cross. Listen, if you don't stop, I'm going to lose it. I mean it. It's too late. It's too late. Wait, please. I got kicked out because of you. No, you got kicked out. Rushmore was my life. Now you are. No, I'm not. What do you really think is going to happen between us? Do you think we're going to have sex? That's a kind of cheap way to put it. Not if you've ever fucked before, it isn't. Oh, my God. How would you describe it to your friends? Would you say that you'd fingered me? Or maybe I could give you a hand job. Would that put an end to all of this? Please get out of my classroom. I think that's a really important scene. I think that's a crucial yeah, scene. Yeah, and I know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to send you a picture of who could play that character now. What? Which character? The teacher uh, or Max? Max? Okay. 
It's the guy who plays number five from Umbrella Academy. He looks identical. I 100% believe he's meant to be a reference to Max. That would be very obscure. Not necessarily. Rushmore's a pretty famous movie. From what I know of the character, it doesn't really relate all that well. I I like the Scottish kid. Yeah, I do too. And how he just, he calls Max out on his shit. And he's one of the only characters who does that. Max tries to step to him too. Like, he tries to physically take him on, and it's like, I could have told you that wasn't gonna work. <laughs> it ain't happening, Come bud. On. He's so much bigger than you. Like, one shot he's down on his ass, and Dirk's just like, nah, you did that to yourself. I think Herman is also, a, he's not a good guy. No, he cheats on his he's... wife. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that his wife is already cheating on him. Yeah. Yeah. And, like... It's a, that that softens it a bit, but he still, has, he is such a sad individual mm. that the simple fact that he gets cajoled into this prank war with this child <laughs> is just depressing. It's like the man has nothing else in his life but to do this. All of the three main characters are desperately lonely people who are looking to relate mm. to other people. I mean, we've already gone into the pathology of Max, but. You've got Herman, who is basically, who's trapped in this loveless marriage with these kids that he clearly hates. I mean, he's living with strangers in his own house, basically. He's, 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 he's found... He's a millionaire, but he's got this empty life. And then you've got Miss Cross... He, he bloody graduates himself in a in dirty pool. pool. Yeah. But then Miss Cross has lost her husband and appears not to have very many friends or family she is also other than luke wilson she is lonely she's grieving you've got a lot of that and that's even before we get into the whole like oedipal element between max and her like there is sort of a mother figure element to to what's going on with her that this is that she almost represents his mother in in the relationship that he has with her obviously not in the 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 romantic context but in just the sense that she becomes this strong female presence in his life this nurturing presence who treats him with empathy and engages with him intellectually in a way that he clearly hasn't gotten from many other people that that is just again i'm not defending a lot of the stuff that that Max does, I do agree with you that he's arrogant, but I I also think that there's a lot more. This is a much more three dimensional and complicated setup than just he's an arrogant prick and I didn't like him. I, I love I love his stage productions yeah. with the Max Fisher. Oh yeah, like he's he's adapted Serpico for the stage of a. It's like seeing Wes Anderson going back to stuff he did in the theater growing up and the staging of stagings of it. Oh, way too high a budget for even a <laughs> private school production. I like they've the... got bl- like Tommy guns with blanks in them. They've got like trolleys going up the back. Then the final big performance of what's it called? Like War and Peace mm. with like the whole recreated beach TNT that he swiped from a construction site. I think the the little play <laughs> bit that really tickled me was when he was pretending to be like in a gang in like LA and I was was just sitting there like Max I don't know I don't think you should be writing this particular script like 
You clearly do not understand, like, my dude. When I was at university, if we had even a fraction <laughs> of the budget, he has seemingly been given somehow. Just on a whim. He's somehow convinced this <laughs> public school to just throw every single bit of and money and effort into this production. Like, his script is lacking, but his production sense and his direction sense, fantastic. It makes you wonder what, what, what Max he... could have done if he only just focused on the dra- dramatic oh, yeah. side of things, like, on making his scripts, and left like the beekeeping shit and the fencing club behind. Like He is wasting his time and energy on all of the other clubs he's a part of. Absolutely. Latin's a dead language, drop that shit. <laughs> he tries so hard to get Latin back, and he's not even around to enjoy it. I, I like the fact that part of his character, and this is a part that I really, really did find so interesting with his pathology. He goes to all these clubs, he starts them up, but is utterly failing at his schoolwork, mm. and... The thing that will actually bring him the success. The thing that will actually bring him success. But he thinks that when you're in one of these top shit schools, you get a pass on that sort of thing. You can just, like, bluff your way through. Which relates back to the monologue at the beginning that Bill Murray's doing. He's talking about all the rich kids, how they can get through life and just coast without having to work for it. But kids who don't have the money, kids who got in on a scholarship, actually have to work their asses off to get even a fraction of what the rich kids yeah. have got. You go to one of the best schools in the country, Rushmore. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich, and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember... They can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. And Max is trying to do all these separate things, not only to make himself seem like he fits in, but to also pad out, pad out his resume experience. So, so he can say, look at all these clubs that I've been in and started and I'm president of. Also, it also feels like he's like desperately trying to get all those experiences in that he wouldn't be able to get otherwise. It's interesting, like... Because he's afraid that they'll eventually figure out that he's not worthy of being at Rushmore. So he's, like, trying desperately to do all the things. Hmm. Like, there's there's a scene where he's talking to Bloom at the wrestling match that Bloom's sons are in. Uh, and then somebody tags Max in. He takes (laughs) off the shirt and everything. He's just got his, like, wrestling gear underneath. He's like, Oh, I'm a tapping. Yeah, he, you he's got his fingers. Too. He's got his fingers in every pie, which stretches him incredibly thin. Yeah, he just seems like a very like stressed out dude. Yeah, and I just think I I love that funny image of him practicing his fencing in the gym in the public school, and then all of the basketball players come in because it's like Max, you had to have known. Uh, I do. If there was a fencing club at my high school, I'd be 100% into that. Would you do fencing? Mm, probably not. I'm not very much a physical activity sort of a person. <laughs> but like also that he's just apparently smuggled a sword into this uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> California too. public school. He also brings like his 
He also brings his BB gun into Rushmore, like taking up a sniper's perch to take on oh, the Scottish yeah. kid. Well, uh, we haven't like, actually talked about like Jason Schwartzman. Mm. He's fantastic. He's fantastic. Guys. Like this is as I Absolutely. like he was. I might not like Max, but Schwartzman does a fantastic job. And it, I think it's gutsy to give him all those sharp edges. I think I think it's yeah. it's the right call that Schwartzman makes not to not to um, try and make him more likable when the script doesn't call for it. That he is mm. he is allowed, he lets his, the character be prickly and arrogant and pathetic, and he embraces that rather than resisting it. This was um, let me just. Uh, he, he he was, I've already mentioned, not even 18 when he shot this. He was still doing, like, um, studio schooling between um, takes. And this was his first role, his first job. Uh, he didn't, he, he didn't even work again until 2000 when he played Howie Gelfand in Freaks and Geeks for one episode. So, very... And then Wes Anderson just kept using mm-hmm. him. Well, actually, not for a while. Um, he he wasn't in Royal Tenenbaums. He wasn't in the Darjeeling Limited. He's he's not picked up by Wes Anderson again for another ten years. He is in the Darjeeling Limited. Sorry, he's not in the Life Aquatic. He's not picked up by Wes Anderson again for another ten years until the Darjeeling Limited, which is a fantastic movie. Yeah, it, it's actually interesting to to see if you look at his resume as an actor. That he really isn't used much at all between Rushmore and Darjeeling Limited. He had a he had a, a small part in Bewitched, the Will Farrell Bewitched. There's an uncredited role in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Here we here we go. He's, he's like big role after Rushmore is playing Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette for Sophia Coppola. And then the next year is the Darjeeling Limited. And after that, he starts to get more, like, consistent, like, stuff. You get funny people. You get Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Who did he play in that? Gideon. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he was Gideon. That's right. I guess that's what also soured me to him immediately, because I bloody hate Gideon from that movie. we got to cover that. So what you're telling me is Jason Schwartzman works with the upper echelons of cinema and the people who did Bewitched. <laughs> Well, also, if, I mean, just if you look at, like, uh, like his filmography between Darjeeling Limited and Rushmore, there's, like, an episode of Freaks and Geeks, some short films that in which he voices a, a cartoon animal for children. Julius and Friends, he voices Julius, who is either a monkey or a bear from the looks of this. Yeah. No, no, it's a, a monkey, a, a monkey. monkey. Yeah. So he does a few of those. He's in Slackers, but, like, oh... I Heart Huckabees. I Heart Huckabees. He's got a big role in I've I Heart I've heard of that movie. I know nothing about it. I mean, it. that's the, the famous leaked tape of uh, of David O. Russell on set just having a screaming match with L- Lily Tomlin, calling her every name in the book and her giving like giving it back just as well as she's getting it and like him throwing stuff and in the in the background i i think it's jason schwartzman actually but it might be no yeah i'm pretty sure it's jason schwartzman where Jack, this is clearly not an unusual occurrence on the set of i had huckabees because jason schwartzman's just in the background leaning back in his chair with his feet on the table just going yep i'll just wait for them to finish <laughs> but yeah it was like a like a pretty notoriously uh a big dust up we could we'll watch that clip after we finish recording because it's something else. Oh, I mean, yeah. Lily Tomlin is not the kind of person to be taking people's shit. No, that much is very clear. 
watching that clip. But yeah, he's he's really, really good in this. He sort of, he occupies the role of, of Max in a really complete way. In a really, oh, he, yeah. he commits 100% to it. And for that to be his acting debut, at least on screen, I don't know if he was from the theatre or anything, that's impressive. Very impressive. He doesn't leave anything behind. No, and he goes... He has such a... He has a physical energy. Yeah, too. and he goes up on, against, like, Bill Murray on screen and holds his own. And that's the other thing is, like, this is a really important moment for the career of Bill Murray because this is when... This is the moment where he transitions from the mainstream studio comedy stuff, you know, Ghostbusters, Groundhog Day... Caddyshack, where he transitions from that to independent cinema Bill Murray, which is the the realm that he has occupied ever since. Yeah, and then he did Garfield. Oh, uh, that's true. <laughs> well, he, he... had Garfield too, Tale of Two Kids. Every now and then he does do something like that, or he does, you know, the cameos in Zombieland, or the, the 2016 Osmosis Ghostbusters. Jones. But this is... Are we doing an episode on Osmosis Jones? No. I don't think that's <laughs> not on the list. John, his scenes in that are utterly repugnant. I am not watching Osmosis Jones. But like that's the bit where he's like he's doing he's doing wild things and Space Jam and in Space Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Playing himself getting getting tapped in to play on the Looney Tunes team at the end of, of Space Jam. You have to admit, that's a very Bill Moody thing to do. Oh yeah, that I'm I'm not saying it's not kinda cool, but but then it's like you, you get like I'd love to be tapped in by the Looney Tunes. Him him playing Polonius in the Ethan Hawke Hamlet after that and Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic and all the stuff that he's done with Sophia Coppola and with Wes Anderson, the the work that he is doing he gets into that sort of mode where he'll just turn up in these really strange places where he'll just sort of rock up for an episode of something like he's just there in the first episodes of vice Prince of vice principals on hbo or he's just there for a couple of episodes of alpha house that short-lived political comedy on amazon you get that you know that hollywood legend what is now legend where he doesn't have an agent and the only way you can get him in your movies is he has a, a toll-free phone number that you can call and leave a message on an answering machine that he checks irregularly. And um, that's how you get him in your movie. And, like, he's missed... Either that or have a personal relationship. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that Wes Anderson and Sophia Coppola have got his home phone number. But, yeah. but like... I mean, apparently, whenever Wes Anderson phones Bill Murray, Bill Murray just says, yes, I'll do it. Yeah. This is where we get to, like, the weird sort of guru, sage Bill Murray that we, we've got now. Yeah. We can talk about it more when the Royal Tenenbaums comes up on the list, but, like, that whole story of how Gene Hackman was a bit of a terror on set and everyone was scared of him except Bill Murray, so Wes Anderson would, like, hide behind Bill Murray while while trying to give... Gene Hackman direction because Bill Murray was the only one that just didn't care. <laughs> like that that little like motive of the, the the internet meme Bill Murray is is sort of what we get out of Rushmore, I think. So bless it for that. It's like the same it's the same kind of thing as the Jeff Goldblum effect. Yeah. Like Chaos they are a, they are kind of a singular celebrity. They they're not just famous because of their movies, they're famous because they are themselves as well. Have you seen the trailer for the On the Rocks, the new 
Sofia Coppola comedy that he's doing. Is that the one where he's trying to help his daughter catch out her fiance? Yes, yes. I have seen that. I've yes, seen I the, trailer, see the for trailer, trailer for that. That looks amusing. I'm I'm always happy to see him working with Sofia. Like I am down for anything that involves Bill Murray and Sofia Coppola together. I'm I'm excited because Lost in fact... Translation was fantastic. I'm I'm excited by the fact that it seems like it's Sofia Coppola. Just doing a straightforward comedy. Mm. That, that seems like a very interesting direction for me. Oh, I don't it. think it's a straightforward comedy. No, no, that no, it's not. Doesn't... The, the trailer was kind of implying that. That seems very much to me like um like the kind of, of surreal, quirky, dramedy stuff that is so prevalent. Yeah, but, but it's going to be more along the lines of Marie Antoinette and less along the lines of Lost in Translation, which is like depression on celluloid. Like, I think... Bill Murray in this, I think he's still not comfortable with dramatic stuff yet in Rushmore. He's confident, but he's not quite putting it all. He hasn't reached St. Vincent yet. Oh no, not yet. Uh, That's kind of a similar character. He's not... Just to clarify, are we holding up St. Vincent as a really great Bill Murray movie? It's a great performance by Bill Murray and Melissa McCarthy. Okay. We've talked about the, the, the first two actors in this this triptych but then there's olivia williams as miss cross and she is excellent in this like she is exactly what the character needs to be are you guys familiar with her work at all not really not really no she was a series regular on the joss whedon show dollhouse which i strongly recommend like that's like incredibly tightly packed insane genre storytelling that is really complicated that they did over two seasons and actually wrapped up really, really well. But she plays this this icy head of this amoral corporation in in Dollhouse. She's she's very very good in it. But she's also in uh, in that new Anthony Hopkins movie, The Father, about the the Anthony Hopkins plays a guy with with Alzheimer's, and they do this thing where it's told through his perspective. So all of the shifts in the way that he sees the world and the erratic changes that he goes through is what we see rather than the people looking after him. And so Olivia Coleman plays his daughter and there will be moments where he just doesn't recognise her and instead she's played by Olivia Williams. Oh, that's neat. That's an incredibly compelling way to portray that story. Yeah. The trailer looks phenomenal and I know like Anthony Hopkins is already on a lot of like Oscar predictions list for it. I'll have to have it. I mean, I'll have to check that out. Anthony Hopkins is the greatest actor currently living, so... <clears throat> Ian yeah. McKellen. Oh, it's a... <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. Okay, we can get into that afterwards. Are we wrapping up? I do want to talk about the, the aesthetic and the music, just before we go. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we haven't touched that yet. The music is very much Wes Anderson's shtick. Yeah. He loves putting in just indie rock and covers of things. Like, one of the biggest striking things about Life Aquatic, other than the fact of it being just a fantastic movie, is all of those covers done in French of, I think, they're mostly David Bowie songs. And it's like, He's got such a fantastic ear for what can work in a scene. I like the use of Here Comes My Baby in this. I love that. A quick one while he's away during the the prank war. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. 
Um, yeah, it's like the whole thing of even if I don't know these songs and I don't, it's still I, I listen to it and I'm like, it fits so perfectly. And ooh la la at the very end is sort of the wrap up while they're dancing. You know, I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger. One of the things I really, really, really appreciate about Wes Anderson's style is his precision. His staging is mm. so particular. His direction of performers. And their physicality is so precise. You've got Schwartzman moving around kind of like a person shouldn't be in some scenes. It's the bits when he's on stage. Right. It's there's a difference between when you're moving on stage and when you're moving in a more traditional film. Mm. And they tow that line at times. Right. But Jason Schwartzman's performance has such a specificity is what I'm saying. Right. Like, it's too precise to be a person at times. It's the thing, like, it's why Wes Anderson, I think, is a really good example of why I think talking about giving names to film film styles and schools of film is kind of a fool's errand. Because no director Mm. is ever going to adhere to one specific school of of film. And no good director is ever going to uh, do that. Because if you look at, like, Wes Anderson's control of the camera and the way that he frames his shots. Yeah. He's he's operating in a very formalist area, sorry. Formalist area in the, he he has a very a very controlled use of the camera, but at the same time, you can never call Wes Anderson a formalist filmmaker. I mean, look at the mm-hmm. movies that he makes. They are not formalist whatsoever. So, I I yeah, I I always find those sort of acting filmmaking schools of thought to be a little bit of a, of a of a silly thing it's the same thing with like acting which is like oh method actors or stuff like that it's like well yeah but filmmaking and acting are such subjective arts that you're never going to come across one person who does things exactly the same as another person i yeah. mean it, no, absolutely. you can kind of find broad umbrellas to group them under i suppose but at the end of the day here, we're really just trying to label something that can't really be labelled. Yeah, it's like, all artists pull from what has come before. Obviously, you don't get into the arts if you're not inspired to by something that you've seen. But you're always going to bring inspiration from here, and inspiration from here that no one else has really just put together as much as that. And that's what Wes Anderson does. He takes his inspiration from all of these different places and he just slams them together. And he does it in such a way that it is very singular to his kind of vision of things. I have issues with the whole auteur idea, but he is one of the examples of he works so well with his collaborators that they are able to execute his vision of a thing. I think one of the most striking things about a Wes Anderson movie is the editing. The editing really helps give it its energy in a lot of ways. And Rushmore has the same editor as Life Aquatic. Mm. And the little clips at the start where he's introducing all the clubs he's a part of. Yeah. That's like trademark Wes Anderson style. Oh, when when they do the... When they showed that little image of, like, an undersea documentary, <laughs> it looked like a shot from Life Aquatic, and I'm like, could that little documentary thing be made by Steve Zizou? Which inspired the idea in my brain of oh, an Anderson extended universe. But then there's the thing in, like, the thing that leads him to Miss Cross in the first place is he finds a quote that she has scribbled in a book yeah. uh, of Jacques Cousteau. 
is yeah. pretty very obviously the inspiration for Steve Zissou. So you're seeing Wes Anderson's influences here. Yeah. Anyways, in terms of the parents' guide, nothing particularly funny, although whoever wrote the IMDb parents' guide had a strange obsession with figuring out how consistently Olivia Williams was wearing a bra. <laughs> okay. That's weird. Apparently she's not in every scenes, and it is very obvious to this person. It was not to me. Maybe that's because I'm not a weirdo, but... I wasn't paying attention yeah. to that, to be honest. But other than that, there doesn't appear to be anything in the, the parents' IMDb parents' guide worth bringing up. So why don't we move on to our MVP and our favourite scene or sequence in this movie. I am going to go with my MVP. I'm going to go with Jason Schwartzman, because I think that the movie doesn't work without him. I think that he needs to give Max the kind of depth and energy that he does for the character to be tolerable, to be, to be sympathetic in any way, for you to be able to empathise with him in any way. I didn't expect to be having to defend the character of Max when I sat down to record this podcast. But as I said, while I, I, I don't think a lot of what he does is is defensible or right, I... I see a really sad character there and I think that it's Jason Schwartzman that brings so much of that depth. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it feels weird to call this a favourite scene um, because it's very unpleasant to watch but I think it is the most important scene in the movie and it is it is really crucial to the arc of the characters and to the themes of the movie. It's the scene where he tries to kiss Miss Cross and she rounds on him and really tears him down verbally and cuts him into pieces. I think that's such... It's an unpleasant scene to watch, but it's so important for the movie, for the development of the Max character, and for the development of the Miss Cross character. It's it's crucial, and they didn't flinch, and I think that was important. I think my MVP is Mason Gamble. <laughs> yes. Because he just brings such a weird energy across. He apparently played Dennis the Menace, and I can see that. You can see it sort of, but there's also a reservedness to Dirk that yeah. is not present in Dennis. Because I, I just love those spooky moments where you hear, like, weird choirs chanting. He, w- he, was, um, he was young yeah. Ethan Hawke in Gattaca. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he is a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. I guess it was fortunate they were, you know, opening the ground for a marine biology lab. Yeah, he didn't. I guess so. It's it's unfortunate that he didn't have more of a of, a, of an acting career. He's very but he good. seems happy in what he's doing. Oh, he's still, like, he was in something in 2011. So, yeah, it seems like he's, he's done stuff. He does bits and pieces. But I think he's just happy with the way his life is. And that's great. Yeah, Dirk has just such an energy to him. He's so weird and off-kilter. And his interactions with Herman are just absolute gold. It's like the kid... Married man, when, when he goes in front of Herman's car, it's almost like he's daring him to do it. <laughs> and it's wild to me. It's, it's, it's like Joker in The Dark Knight. And I think my favourite moment is, I don't know, I think the prank war, honestly. Because that's when the movie really started to pick up for me. And it really just went to show how absolutely childish these people, these two are. 
they deserve each other. And yeah, yeah. I did enjoy this movie. Don't make it... I don't want it to seem like I didn't. Because Wes Anderson just has just a way with filmmaking and putting characters together. It's always... It's always fascinating, even if they're not my favorite of his. I would have to say my MVP is Wes Anderson. This is where he solidifies his style. It's where he really, really focuses in on the kind of characters he likes to discuss. Characters who are arrogantly intelligent. Mm. Characters who say that they're brilliant and are able to back it up. Brilliant director. I'll give Max yes. that. Yes. The Max Fisher players. Fans, his scripting can you do use some work, but his set design set design is phenomenal. Mm. Well, I I didn't get the chance to mention what we were talking about, but when he's reenacting Serpico, and there's the shot of all of the the actors like firing guns out of the window and it then just cuts back to like all of the preschoolers who have been made to attend and they just look totally confused. (laughs) This is the solidification of Wes Anderson's style in so many ways, in so many areas. His precision, his use of music. It's just, it's fascinating to see the start of his works proper. Yeah. Having only come to be interested in his work from Grand Budapest Hotel, which is perhaps as Wes Anderson as it gets. And he wrote this with Owen Wilson. Yeah, Owen Wilson could write. Yeah, he wrote Bottle Rocket with Owen Wilson and wrote Royal Tenenbaums with Owen Wilson. It's like, Owen Wilson, surprisingly remarkable. A writer. surprisingly remarkable. He's been in some shocking... He's done some shocking scripts. A Haunting, for example. (laughs) Hey. John, that was a bad adaptation. It is terrible, John. I can't go with you on this. You see his head get knocked off. That's awesome. It has charm, but it's a poor script. Especially since we've seen the story done better. My favorite scene has to be that, like, final, the final play, the War and Peace one. It's just, (laughs) it's so amusing. I love how they hand out the safety equipment. Safety equipment just on this off chance that a piece of shrapnel comes screaming out. Like, he stole actual TNT to use in the performance. Mm. How the hell did the school board actually allow him to put that on in a public school? They must have been getting people to pay to attend. But, like, that has to be the case. I, I assume he got, he got Herman to grease the wheels. Oh, yeah, he might have been funding a lot of it. But it's just, it's so audacious, which really goes a long way. And I like how the Scottish kid finally got to be in one of his plays. Yeah. And it's, it's hilarious. I, I find... Those bits thoroughly amusing. So what have we got next week? Next week we will be doing something a little bit different to what we've done before. We will be talking next week about three movies instead of one because they are one big story. Next week we will be tackling the Matrix trilogy. The Matrix. Which has a completely different Mr. Anderson. That comprises the Matrix, the Matrix Reloaded and the Matrix Revolutions. If you would like to watch along at home, then they are all available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video, Foxtel Now, and Stan, as well as for rental and purchase on Apple, Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, and Fetch stores. In addition, the first two movies are available for rental only on the G Store. Not the last one, though. Hold on, what's the G Store? Hell of I know. Oh no, the Q store, the Q store, sorry, Quick Flicks. Uh, Quick Flicks. Uh, whatever that is. Have the Wachowski sisters done anything on Quibi? Pardon? Were the Wachowski sisters tapped for Quibi or No, I don't think so. Like I, I know that 
I think Lana is. I, 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 it's only Lana, I think, that's doing um, that's doing the fourth Matrix. Right. Yeah. So I think Lily's the, Lily's the other doing, doing Lily Lily's yeah. doing a Showtime show, and Lana's yeah, doing the Matrix. So no, they don't have time that's for quick. She's definitely talked to her about it. though. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, they were collaborators I, on the. I feel like Lily Wachowski is probably. At least executive produced. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But because it's their thing, they they gave birth to this project together. I, I'm I'm excited for it. Yeah, I, I quite too. like the first Matrix. Haven't yeah. seen the other two. So that's haven't you haven't seen the other two? I've seen bits and pieces. Yeah. Oh, like uh, I know that there's a character called the Merovingian, which is a dope name. That's a hell of a name. That's like Carpathian. It's. Like a biblical sounding word. Yeah. Well, um, it's I'm it's excited. it's a line of kings in France. Um, that's the name apparently yeah. comes from a line of kings in France that believed that they were the descendants of Jesus. That's dope. So keep that, that in that mind. Awesome. Keep that in mind when you see that character. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll I'll have to read a bloody book on philosophy with the amount of shit that gets well, thrown out. Well, if you're interested, in the Matrix franchise. if you're interested, there is the book The Matrix and Philosophy. Of course there is. Of course there is. Of course there is. I still have access to the university's library. Yes. <laughs> That's going to be helpful. Uh, anyway, we so... until we graduate. So, like... Comment, subscribe, share this with friends. But keep in mind, when you comment, you're not commenting on individual episodes, just on the show on the whole. On Apple Podcasts. No, that's how it is on all of them. On all of them? Mm -hmm. Even Spotify? That's how the podcasts work, Hmm, unfortunately. You can give us individual feedback on individual episodes on our Twitter. And on the Facebook for Lawson's blog. Yeah. Uh, You can also find us at our individual blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Did the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. And those links, as well as the Twitter, are in the description wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. Please follow the Twitter because that is the easiest way to communicate with us and the easiest way to get updates exactly about if we have to change uh release dates or are going to bringing some exciting projects out yeah don't worry it's not going to be like pushing the batman back to 2021 no we're going to 2022 actually (laughs) yeah there's some bonus episodes that are going to be coming out so just i why are we teasing bonus episodes that we are at least two and a half months away from you had to get them (laughs) excited lawson you have to build it up i i know what we're doing though and it's not like i mean i mean it's interesting but i mean let's not just pretend that we're we're going to be blowing the doors I'm off I'm excited here. to show you this movie. I know, this. and that says something about you, but I don't think that the general <laughs> listenership, uh, I, I think you're building Aren't up you a little too much. Aren't you excited to show us a proper piece of garbage? Pardon? Aren't you excited to show us a proper piece I of am. garbage? I am. I am. I'm convinced you have no conception of the badness of what I'm going to show you. Anyways. I'm excited. Sure. <laughs> yes. I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. And we saved Latin, damn it! You are forgiven! <laughs>